WTBC Radio and Beautiful Anywhere Anyone is sponsored by Live Bar. Locally made, delicious, nutritious, balanced, and sustaining. Here's the deal. These are gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, corn-free, GMO-free. The only thing that they aren't is free-free, but that does not matter because there are some incredible flavors, including... Blueberry vanilla kale, raspberry kale maca, coffee maple cacao, and ginger lemon turmeric. Let me tell you right now, if your mouth is watering thinking, I would like to have one of those Live Bars, then what you want to do is check out livebars.com. That's right, L-I-V-B-A-R-S dot com. That is where you can get ordering information, find out where they are sold in stores, and uh, get to know Live Bar. I think one of the coolest things about this business is that not only are they local here in Salem, just like this podcast, but they also employ people from the area, keeping the business incredibly local as well. I mean, you're not going to find anything like this anywhere else. Why not try Live Bar? Eat real food. It's our conversation with Nathan Carson. Writer and musician. Drummer in Witchmount. When was the last time you watched The River's Edge? Wanting to be cool. I've tried to explain before the quality that Oregon and the Pacific Northwest hold that uh, differentiates it from the rest of the United States. It's something that's, you know, hard to exactly put my finger on, but there's certainly this quality, this distinct character, this, um, I don't know, personality, if you will, that comes with people from this area. It's almost like we catch a certain kind of weirdness or uh, we are being challenged by the David Lynch depiction of Twin Peaks and... uh, the um, way that uh, Northern Exposure seems to uh, suggest that we were all crazy and we're like, oh yeah? You think that's weird? But, I mean, it kind of goes a little bit deeper than just weirdness because weird is kind of selling all of this stuff short. In a way, it, it sort of suggests that, you know, that's the only dimension to it, but... I find people who are, uh, I don't know, like uh, hillbilly doctorates, you know, they're like these weirdos that live in the mountains, but they quote Shakespeare and they seem to have more culture than city folk. It's hard to explain uh, and probably even more difficult to exactly put into words, but uh, there's something about the Pacific Northwest that breeds a certain kind of person, um, a free-range kid, uh, as Nathan Carson puts it. 
this kind of person that, uh, you know, much like the uh, characters in Stranger Things, spends a lot of time outside having adventures and kind of experiencing the world through some sort of fictional lens. Uh, but in Nathan's case, uh, it's more about kind of, you know, taking this rural experience, this place that uh, we all come from that uh, didn't really seem to offer anything, and carving his own path out through the world around him. I mean, you know, he started modestly playing in bands in Corvallis, but as soon as he moved to Portland and started Witch Mountain in the late 90s, he really broke open this whole universe that was sort of his and his alone, at least at the time. Uh, and, you know, in America, as we go on to, to discuss, uh, heavy metal it wasn't exactly cool playing it the way he played it. We get into all of that, and I don't want to spoil that conversation, but I do want to highlight that he and I seem to both understand and get at this notion that there is something about where we live and where we grew up that is unique, that uh, has a flavor that you don't find in other parts of the world. And uh, even when you do, it's a little bit misrepresented. It's not that this character is disappearing by any stretch of the means. Uh, there is a sort of hillbilly hippie that is still wandering through the woods here in Oregon, occasionally popping into the country fair or uh, stopping at Portland to take in a few shows. And there's definitely a lot of these heavy metal weirdos out in the woods sucking down six-packs and smoking cigarettes like they're going out of style, turning over Iron Maiden tapes again and again as they drive through the evening to who knows where. I like to think that at any given moment, there's some sort of heavy metal ritual happening somewhere in this state. There's probably a group of 15-year-olds right now discovering weed and Black Sabbath, and for that, we should all be grateful, because those kids will probably pick up guitars soon, and who knows where their future's going to lead. And in the case of Nathan... You might just end up becoming a writer. WTBC Radio in beautiful anywhere, anywhere. This conversation was recorded on January 4th, 2018. I guess a good place to start then would be the Willows, or maybe even we should roll it back a little further. How did you discover Algernon Blackwood's uh, ghost stories? Well, I think like most people in this era, I heard of him through H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, he is really um, gushed about in supernatural horror and literature. The Willows was at times considered Lovecraft's favorite short story. Mm. So uh, being someone who's been very passionate about Lovecraft and his writings, <clears throat> you know, from a young age, Blackwood certainly came up over and over, as did Arthur Mackin and uh, Robert Chambers and William Hope Hodgson. You know, a lot of, you know, Charlotte Gilman's Perkin. There are a lot of really fine authors that Lovecraft was tapped into when, you know, gothic horror and supernatural weird fiction was such a, you know, it was possible to have read all of it in those days. 
But having said that, I was familiar with Blackwood and owned a collection of his stories for many years without ever even really cracking it open. I just figured, oh, that's on my shelf. That will always be there. And then <clears throat> about a year and a half ago, I was having lunch with Jason Levian, who owns Floating World Comics here in Portland, and it's considered one of the hippest, coolest comic shops in the country, and I definitely can attest to that. It's a great place. And he mentioned that he was interested in adapting some public domain properties into comic books and asked if I had ever read The Willows. And I had, in fact, just read The Willows for the first time with this horror reading group that I get together with monthly. And we loved the story, and it just seemed like synchronicity to me that Jason would mention this story right when I had just read it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, and I have always wanted to write a comic book, and what a cool way to write a first script to base it on a classic story. So it was a really great project for me to learn the art of comic scripting, and I'm really excited to do something original in the future now that I have a bit of a handle on it. <clears throat> At this point, I've had about a dozen stories on a novella published in the last two, three years, so I'm very much in a fiction writing mode. I, I had been doing music journalism and you know film criticism and things like that for 15, 17 years prior, so I've been writing for a long time, but very recently, I've sort of taken that long-running passion to do weird fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy type things, and and really moved into a serious phase where I'm publishing my work. And so those muscles have been built, and I felt really ready for a challenge like this. And I'm really happy with the results. I mean, I was looking over final proofs of issue two, which is the conclusion of our graphic novel adaptation just yesterday. And, you know, Sam's illustrations are so fantastic, and the letterer has more experience than we do, so his instincts are awesome. <laughs> and and it's just really it's really cool to see it kind of coming to fruition. It's just almost done. Yeah, yeah. Now I've seen the uh, um the, the first one that you sent me, which I mean the mm -hmm. art in here needs to be talked about because now, now is this Sam who was in uh, Wizard Rifle, if I'm not yeah, mistaken? Yeah, he's 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 still in Wizard Rifle. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was trying to actually... make sure that was the same Sam that I was thinking of. Uh yeah. Oh, really cool. great guy. We've been friends for years. For a while, we were housemates. Uh, I've booked all the tours for Wizard Rifle for many years uh, through my booking agency, which is my day job. And we have, you know, in the in our long friendship, we've always talked about doing a comic together because he grew up apprenticed to a master comic artist named Paul Chadwick. Oh, whoa! Uh, yeah. So the guy who did Concrete was. Sam's mentor when Sam was a teen. I'm standing next to a box that has uh, many concrete uh, issues in it. Yeah. So, you know, you can see where that sort of fine art level illustration, you know, comes into Sam's style from, from a young age. Um, but it's, it is, you know, a comic project is tough to get off the ground. It's daunting to do that many illustrations and then to right. have to shop it around. Um, so we had this really fortunate scenario where a publisher came to us and said, you know, here's this idea, and if you want to do it, then we'll put it out. And so <laughs> the ideal scenario when it comes to publishing a comic, because otherwise it's basically like pushing uh, you know, a piece of rope up a hill. You know, it's like it's <laughs> absolutely. And uh, I feel incredibly fortunate that we were able to sort of skip that step. And, you know, that's not to say that if we wrote an original book, we wouldn't be back to ground zero, but at mm. least. Now we have the experience and a publishing credit and people are taking notice of this work. And so, I mean, 
certainly it's been a Herculean task for Sam to draw that kind of detailed art over 48 pages and two covers. Right. Um, but we looked at this as not necessarily a cost effective project as much as sort of a resume builder. And, you know, we want to really just dazzle people with the quality that we're capable of so that they would want us to do something else in the future. Well, yeah, this book looks really cool too. Like it's, it's got its own visual aesthetic that is not a lot like a lot of things on the market right now. And I really mm -hmm. appreciate that. Uh, sometimes people kind of like to copy what's flashy. <clears throat> right. Especially with genre stuff where, you know, you're often following the lead of whatever is really hot in the market right now. So to see something that sticks out and is like, no, this is its own voice. Like that's, that's very refreshing. Yeah. It, I mean, and particularly the way Sam depicts the women in the comic. I mean, they're not bombshell bikini superhero women. They're they're believable characters, and that's right. what we wanted because that's what that was really the fatal flaw in the Willows in our reading was that it's such a masterful story, and the prose and the atmosphere and the plot are wonderful, but the characters are these two unnamed men that have a very ambiguous relationship that's not very believable, like supposedly these guys have been on many expeditions together and yet they don't really seem to know each other <laughs> and so <clears throat> i thought well how about we give these characters names and backstories and and some sort of you know friendship <clears throat> that makes it easier to care about them and and follow their you know descent into extra dimensional dread right flesh it out a little bit so that there's more to kind of latch on to when the uh, emotional beats start coming yeah, I mean, in 1907, it was perfectly acceptable to have your characters just be ciphers that were there for, you know, <laughs> strange things to happen to, and the reader could sort of put themselves in that place. But right. in 2017, I think readers demand a little bit more than that from a story, and it, it, it just would have felt antiquated. Like, I love having the old language in the book, because mm -hmm. that is, the, is a connection to Blackwood, and that is how that atmosphere is created. But I felt like preserving those characters that he obviously put so little time and thought into it <laughs> didn't seem necessary and and I think it would have held back the quality of the piece so what we wanted was to honor the original story and not change the willows or upset fans of the willows but we wanted to just try to make it a better story um, right 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 well and those kind of challenges uh, crop up in any adaptation like you know, anytime Absolutely. you want to find something from the past and try to bring it to a modern audience, there's something that you compromise. Um, that being said, a lot of the initial reviews are about how faithful this adaptation is. Uh, <laughs> and that's great. I mean, that's that's really what we aimed for because we are true fans of the story. So at no time did we think, how can we break this and, you know, wrestle it to our needs? It was more <laughs> just how can we make this the best it can possibly be? And 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 make it gorgeous to look at and preserve just I mean it's the, the original Willows is 60 pages of very dense lush language and we knew we were going to lose so much of that so mm -hmm. I really you know my task was about going through and finding those little kernels that couldn't that we couldn't live without like how can you tell the story and preserve that atmosphere in as few words as possible and this still ends up being a very wordy comic Right. Because that's the nature of this story, and I think it's appropriate. I mean, there's really just two characters that are having a dialogue mm -hmm. while these strange events happen to them. So 
Um, anyway, I'm, I'm really happy with how it turned out. I, th I think really the biggest compromise we have had to endure in adapting this from a prose novella into a graphic presentation is simply that there are points in the original text where there's just a lot of time goes by where the characters are just left worrying or pacing or trying to sleep. Right. And we didn't want to have pages and pages of she goes into the tent, she comes out of the tent, she goes into the tent, she comes out of the tent, you know? It, would right. have, it just would have gotten visually boring. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we lose a little bit of that sort of time-stretching sense. I think it's, it's naturally condensed. The action is condensed because it's only 48 pages of um, comics right. pages instead of 60 pages of text. But I think that's a small price to pay for, you know, I think, in, if anything, it just, it condenses it and... Uh, and I think that's what a comic reader is probably looking for. In a way, it kind of distills it too, to, to mm -hmm. like just the the essence in a way. Absolutely, and there are there's a lot of repetition in the Blackwood, you know, where they're sort of <laughs> going around in their minds about, you know, is this real? Am I imagining it? Am I going crazy? Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's really effective in the original story, but I don't think from a storytelling perspective. Um, the redundancy is necessary for our purpose. Right. It doesn't translate as well to the comics page either, because a lot of the comics page is um, geared around that page turn. And yeah. uh, when you're kind of repetition like that can often make the reader feel like, wait, I've looked at this page already. And it kind of Absolutely. dulls that I mean, experience. It's already, you know, two characters on a sandbar. So it's a very fairly limited setting and pool of characters but I think Sam did a really impeccable job of keeping it visually interesting the whole time. Oh, yeah. There's a little bit of that um, creepy magazine or eerie mm. magazine vibe to the art. And, I mean, it, it just it, it really leaps off the page. It's, it's fun to look at. It's awesome. I mean, I've, there's no one I wanted to work with on a first comic more than Sam. And I'm really proud to have helped him get past the the daydreaming phase about making a comic. I mean, he, he has worked on projects on his own, but nothing that's been published yet. And so it's really just sketchbooks and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think he has a whole comic that's original that he's written and drawn that is maybe close to finished. Mm. But, but I think this experience, you know, sort of shine a light on, you know, what it takes to get the project done and how much work it really is. And I, th I think anything he does from here, he'll have a really realistic idea of, you know, how to execute it and how long it will take. And, and right. maybe that the level of detail we've employed on this was a bit extravagant. Um, <laughs> it's but nice again, to kind of knock it out of the park on the first try, though, to really kind of show what you can do. That was absolutely the intent. Yeah. So far, so good. <laughs> That's cool. That's yeah, well, and and like I, I think uh, you know a lot of people when they have that fantasy dream of like oh I would love to do a comic someday, they don't realize the actual production work behind drawing every single page of that story. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and and honestly, I don't even think Sam quite realized what a task it was as as much as he knew, or maybe he knew in the back of his mind. But you know, it's really. It's taken a long time to pump it all out, but yeah. he's he's made it happen, and uh, and the work is glorious. So I'm really excited. I just I have a feeling his next project, the backgrounds will be simpler. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's when you do like a Dave Sim thing where you hire a background artist and then you just right? you know focus on your on your main stuff. 
Um, well, you know, uh, we should talk about your other writing as well, because it's, you know, writing comics, this is kind of a, a newer thing, but you have done some fiction that's in the weird fiction vein, uh, as well as nonfiction, which I think you can find a lot of the nonfiction on your website, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I, <clears throat> well, I mean, uh, what what I posted on that website, as far as nonfiction goes, is kind of a drop in the bucket, because mm. I've written hundreds and hundreds of articles over the last 15 years or so. I've tried to just post the ones that were the most spectacular, you know, whether it's me getting to interview Getty Lee or Tony Iommi or uh, you, these small things that you did at one right. point. <laughs> yeah. So those, those are the ones that I, you know, tend to remember or shine a light on. Um, but yeah, I, I have a lot of experience as as a music journalist. Because um, you did some stuff for uh, Maximum Rock and Roll and uh, all sorts of publications, big and small, if I'm not mistaken. Actually, never MRR. I did oh. used to read MRR, and I've had you know my bands reviewed in there over the years. But uh, I did have a column in Metal Edge. I wrote for Terrorizer for years. Got it. Um, so definitely, you know, glossy metal magazines were something I had a hand in. And I've I used to write for the Portland Mercury, then I switched over to the Willamette Week, where I've been for many years. I've started writing for the Oregonian uh, in the last year. Yeah, anyone written, living in Portland, the, uh, the name Nathan Carson comes up uh, uh, in print a fair amount. <laughs> yeah, I think if, if you're a reader, you've probably come across me somewhere, or if you go out to clubs where um, rock DJs play, or if you've ever <laughs> seen my band, Witch Mountain, we've been around for the last 20 years. So Right. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I've certainly established myself in portland since moving here in 97 now was the uh, um music writing kind of before or at the same time as which mountain started going like which one started that off i had done zine type work prior to which mountain but i was definitely already in the band when i started writing for the weeklies here that was something that came a little later and uh partially out of frustration for the fact that like which mountain like the idea of doom metal is fairly commonly understood now doom as right. a genre <laughs> but in 1997 even my bandmates didn't know that term mm. like it it was a really really cult phenomena and uh i think it took which mountain about 10 years of being a band in a being a band before any of the weeklies wrote anything about us we were just it was considered Playing slow and loud heavy metal was considered the lamest thing you could possibly do in the right. 90s in Portland. Well, and you there know, was just... still kind of like this leftover hangover of hair metal that was informing a lot of like, well, it's about technical chops. It's about, right. you know, your Black Sabbath references. It's, a, you know, it had to this People kind of... Didn't, they didn't like guitar solos. They didn't mm. like, clean, you know, high singing. They didn't like double bass. They didn't like... Uh, pro gear <laughs> right <laughs> there, there were just a lot of sentiments that worked against us like in the late 90s in portland it was all about having a cardigan sweater and a guitar that you bought at a garage sale and not practicing very much because you didn't want to seem that good or that you were trying to succeed yeah well um, and contextually this was like a heavy elliot smith era in the late 90s yeah, and, so. and whatever we love like we're fans in fact rob our guitar player was was friends with him i personally only met elliot smith once uh, briefly, and I told him I, I saw him sitting on a couch at this recording studio, looking super bummed out. Mm -hmm. And I just said, "I said, hey man, cheer up!" And he totally did not listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. This is very true. 
Yeah, no, I, I, so this must have been, so like, like, like kind of putting it back in context too, like, yeah, heavy metal wasn't exactly cool in the late 90s uh, either. You know, like if you did stuff that was heavy, maybe Carp was kind of like your reference point or sure, the Melvins. I, I mean, I, you know. I saw Carp nine times while they were around. That was a, that was a wonderful band. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they, they even had like a little bit of that kind of like skate punk attitude to them as well, even though they could get pretty heavy. Uh, I mean, Carp was metal, but I think that it was an era where they got away with a lot by not calling themselves metal. They sort of sidestepped a lot of the tropes of metal. Right. Um, and also sort of were tongue in cheek about it. Mm-hmm. But there was no denying their live power. I'm, I'm really sorry for people that only have the albums because the live Carp was such a force to be reckoned with, and especially seeing Scotty playing drums and shoving a giant railroad tie in his bass drum so it wouldn't move because he was so powerful. <laughs> uh, oh. You see, I only know the stories. I came to Carp way too late, and uh, by then they were not playing anymore. So Yeah. We did... So Carp had probably had folded by the time Witch Mountain started, or close to it, but then um, Scotty and Jared and Joe Preston started a band called The Whip, Right. right after that. And we did play, there's a classic show. I set it up at Satyricon and it was the whip with Witch Mountain. And I'm pretty sure Yob opened because they were pretty new at that time. Yeah, I think I remember this show as well because it was one of those things where, you know, I was at work and then I would just get messages from my friends going like, you missed it. Right. <laughs> and I'm just sitting and, there going, you know, like, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> at that time, the Whip, Yob, and Witch Mountain, you know, that show probably had 75 people at it or something. It wasn't it wasn't the big to-do that it would be today. And right. so that's been interesting for us as people who started playing Doom 20 years ago simply because it was something that we were passionate about, something we were really big fans of, um, and some a tradition that we wanted to participate in. Um, and now we've seen several cycles come and go where that music kind of becomes popular and then sort of recedes again and then becomes popular again. And I, you know, I think people are a bit tired of the term doom at this point. I think we're seeing that saturation occur, but I think we're a little unscathed by it because we've, we've been around so long now and because we don't sound like other bands in that style. Well, and now you've kind of become a little bit of the elders where, you know, in the late nineties and early two thousands, it's like, what is this new band coming up? But like Absolutely. now it's like, oh, that band that's played everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Let's uh, let's make let's make some room for them. <laughs> well, at that time, we were the only band in Portland doing it. We were the first doom band in Portland. And so the first time High on Fire played in Portland, they slept on my floor and we played a show together. And the first time Electric Wizard played in Portland, they slept on my floor and we did a show together. And that, you know, <laughs> that that happened time and again with every band in that style, because the circuit at that time was there was one band in each state that played this kind of music and we all knew each other. Right, right, right. In a way, it was kind of like the punk rock of the late 90s because like, you know, while it was fairly commonplace to see all of these like, you know, house punk shows come together pretty quickly and, you know, you know whatnot, it, it, this was something that I, I remember being around in these times where like, you know, doom metal shows were not super common and when they happened, it was kind of a big deal. <laughs> Yeah, it was an event, although still it was, you know, say when we played with the Dope Throne tour with Electric Wizard, I'd say there was maybe 120 people at that show, you know, (laughs) so we were we were happy. That was great. But it's it's funny to think now, you know, Electric Wizard can sell out a 500 cap venue in advance before they even get to town. 
because they've built, you know, created such a mystique over the years and because they come so seldom. I've seen them quite a few times because we end up on festivals with them, right. you know, in, in Europe or, or wherever. Um, so we're, we're friends from way back, but now were you booking shows at the same time that Witch Mountain was getting going or did that come later on? I was booking local shows, um, but I I learned to book tours by booking Witch Mountain tours. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, like I said, because there was sort of a circuit and there was one band in each state in this style, and there was a forum that a lot of us uh, frequented called stonerrock.com. That was a community of like 10,000 people in 1999, 2000. Oh, yeah. Um, in fact, Witch Mountain was the first band I was ever in that made an MP3 of one of our songs. You know, I'd, I'd been in bands that had recorded before, but this was the first era where we recorded and we made an MP3 and we put it online. And within 30 days of doing that, a label from England sent us a contract and gave us money to record an album. And that it just seemed like, wow, this, <laughs> this is the future. This is so interesting. Yeah, and, it does seem like something out of like a cyberpunk novel. Yeah, it, it just... It felt like it's wow! It really is the 21st century is coming, and putting digital music online is leading to a record deal. It was pretty neat. Um, so, so yeah, I so I booked some Witch Mountain tours, and they were certainly modest, but at the same time, they they panned out. Like we weren't losing money going on the road. Granted, gas was like a dollar ninety five a gallon back then. So. <laughs> oh, you try to explain how tours were, uh, you could at least break even in the old days. And yeah, that, that's one factor right there. <laughs> I mean, we're certainly fortunate that we, you know, have been around long enough that we, it doesn't cost us money to tour now, but at the mm. same time, it's not the same as if we're working at our day jobs either. I mean, we ha- we have to tighten our belt to go on the road, but, w- but we have some privilege that other bands don't simply from being around so long that, you know, it's it's not a break-even thing to go on the road for Witch Mountain. You know, we usually come home with a couple months' rent each, and right. that's you're that's, eating a little better, and yeah, you know. we 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 eat really healthy. We don't do any fast food. Um, you know, we we really don't do many hotels. Like one of the reasons we are able to make money is because we know people everywhere, and so many right. of our friends are like parents whose kids have moved out of the house and so we know all the places where we can go you know stay and have our own bed at somebody's house and not not crash pad type living um yeah that's the good thing about having been around for 20 years is that the kids have grown up too so it's not like there's a baby next door that you have to worry about exactly (laughs) that's awesome yeah you know like uh, this i'm I'm not to nostalgia or wax nostalgic for too long but like the, the idea of like a circuit and having places that you can stay as you're on tour, like this is, you know, in the kind of pre-internet days of those earliest Witch Mountain tours, that's kind of the only way you can make things happen is like a phone call and hoping that they're home when you get there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we, I mean, cell phones came in right around the time we started touring more extensively but I, I would imagine our first tour there were no phones probably luckily it was still all booked via email I, mm. I'm glad that like I look at these old black flag tours that they were booking from pay phones <laughs> and the routings that they were doing were <laughs> in, in Washington DC one night and then they drive all night to get to Chicago for a show, and then they drive all night to get to Boston, and then they go back to like it's just wherever they could get a gig, they did it, and they would just, you know, do speed or whatever, and t- and have the driver go all night and two two shows a night if they could, right? 
And yeah. you know that Mar- getting the van book is very uh, instructive, but it's also like it sounds like another universe, you know, because it's, it's kind of terrifying to me. I'm glad I didn't have to live through that. <laughs> right. Yeah. It sounds, it seems so much easier when like you actually do have the email to, uh, crutch to lean on when you're trying to get some of this stuff to happen. Yeah. And I'm extremely fortunate because my day job as a booking agent working with 31 bands, people actually respond to my emails in a timely fashion. Like most bands don't have that experience. You, you send, emails out and you get responses to maybe 10% of them and it's really <laughs> frustrating and I get responses to I'm sure 90% of my emails and usually like immediately and that's uh that's something I don't take for granted that's awesome yeah it could be really frustrating if you do any kind of uh you know uh, communication through the email uh, where you know you're just hoping people respond <laughs> yeah i mean i really do my best to get back to everyone unless it's spam um right. you know if it's just someone saying oh we want your artist to print merch to our company like i don't feel bad about ignoring them but uh but for the most part i try to give you know even if it's a short polite no thank you I try to not leave people hanging if i can help it right well i imagine all of these connections and whatnot also pay off pretty well with one of your other projects you have on the side the uh, heavy metal sewing circle yeah well i mean the the i have a radio show it's an fm show on a community station called x-ray fm in portland been doing it for four years every week and the nice thing is even if 10 to midnight wednesday night is not convenient for you there's 208 archived shows on the site you can go to x-ray.fm and listen to any of those old episodes at any time. So, the X-ray um, site is pretty impressive because there's a lot of like very cool niche shows that they do one thing really well. Yeah, there's a new soundtrack show, and the guy is super academic about it, and you can learn a lot from listening to it. It's really cool. But yeah, there's so many specialty shows. Any style of music you're into, chances are there's some expert curator doing a weekly show. So yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to be a part of it. Um, How did you get involved with X-Ray, uh, at the beginning? <clears throat> well, I knew some of the people that started the station. And so for a year before it even went on the air, they were bothering me constantly, like, please do a show, please do a show. <laughs> and I was super busy at the time and, and kept kind of putting them off. And then finally they asked me at, in like December, before, and I think the, the station was launching in January or February. And that's a really good time of year to ask me for a favor or something because <laughs> that's when I don't have any bands on the road and I actually have a little bit of mental bandwidth to think about taking on new projects. Right. And uh, I, yeah, I think right around the time X Ray was starting is when I was trying to start minimizing my DJ gigs and focus more on fiction writing. Mm. So I was purposely trying to kind of clean up my schedule. And the idea of doing a weekly show seemed really daunting. But Actually, the way I do it, it doesn't really, I mean, it's something fun that I look forward to, and it doesn't take up a lot of time. It's an excuse to go record shopping. Right. <laughs> and and I just, the way I do my show is very intuitive. I don't spend hours and hours putting together my playlist in advance. I really spend 15 minutes before the show pulling records, and then I bring them to the station, and then I sort of organize them roughly chronologically, and then just start going through and dropping the needle around and thinking, like, well, what song do I want to hear that I haven't played? You know, I I try not to repeat any given song in any 12-month span. 
which you know commercial radio cannot say right yeah yeah well and it sounds like a bit of a party when we listen to the show because it's like i don't know it just seems like fun like to me i picture like a bunch of dudes uh almost dressed like the river's edge drinking beer and (laughs) listening to this show (laughs) that's awesome yeah i mean the river's edge is certainly an influence on star creek as well my novella um i I like that kind of vibe because you know i grew up in in, outside Corvallis uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. So, you know, that culture is very familiar to me. But, but yeah, I mean, a lot of our listeners on the sewing circle tend to be, you know, they're, it's 10 p.m., they're a bit lit, mm-hmm. they've got the music on. You know, there's one guy that calls us that he says he's in, in the basement with his kids pumping iron and blasting our show. Other, <laughs> other guys are, like, working their swing shift job on the assembly line and listening oh, yeah. to our show. Like, whatever it is, I, I just love all the different levels of burnouts that have found us. Sure. Well, and, like, you kind of touched on this with the, with the website, too, but, like, there's something about the stoner metal community that just seems, like, so willing to kind of check out new things, to share things, like... I, I I just remember my friend Cheryl was a person who really introduced me to a lot of this music uh, when I first moved to Portland in the early 2000s, and I you know I just remember not only was Witch Mountain looming large, but just this idea of these metal shows that would kind of pop up, and it just they felt really magical and fun, and um, that's kind of what listening to your show is like, where it just feels like you're at like the coolest metal show where everybody's just drinking and saying, "Hey, how's it going?" Was that Judge Cheryl? Yes, and you, know, awesome. you, you probably know the same one then. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. She's she's a wonderful person, an old friend. She comes to my holiday party every year. Awesome. It's just it's it's funny that someone who I knew from the doom metal community is now a judge in Portland <laughs> for real. It's uh, awesome. Uh, when I first moved, I didn't know anyone else, and so you know, basically, we would get together, go to shows, and talk about records, and so. Mm-hmm. I, I saw Motorhead a bunch with her. Uh, I saw Witch Mountain. Uh, just you know, tons of cool records. Where it was one of those. She was one of those people that like, you know, you've heard of this. Well, what about this? Like, she always had one more she could kind of outdo you with. Where I was like, mm-hmm. I've never heard of this band. <laughs> no, she's sharp. Yeah, super cool lady. She introduced me to Caius. Uh huh. As a kind of you know naive small town kid, where I'm like, huh. <laughs> I saw Caius here in 92 they opened it the show was danzig white zombie and caius and uh, at the fox theater i was living in eugene at the time working at the book bin eugene actually i was 18 mm. and there was this rocker dude i worked with who wore puffy reeboks and he was like hey danzig's coming to portland i'll buy the tickets if you'll drive because i he knew i didn't really drink and mm. i had a car and you know what it's a two-hour drive to blast up to portland for a show and sure. i said Hell yeah, like I, I can drive, but I don't have money for a $18 Danzig ticket because I work minimum wage at this bookstore. <laughs> right. <laughs> so anyway, we drove up, and I mean, it was the How the Gods Kill Tour. Mm. It, Danzig stole the show by miles. That band was so killer at that time. Right. Uh, we sat in the balcony and watched Caius. I remember at the time thinking that, uh, well, so first I was interested in Caius because they're named after D&D creature uh, right that's a monster from i think it's the fiend folio or maybe deities and demigods anyway i watched them and i remember thinking good band but i didn't like the singer at the time and <laughs> and to this day i really think john garcia became a great singer kind of after Caius. like i've seen we've played shows with unita and i've seen him in other projects and he's got a fabulous voice and he's a great guy but i just 
you know, they were so young in Caius. They were really a high school band that got signed to a major label. and Kind of by accident, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I appreciate them, but I never really bonded with that band. I, I really liked the uh, early Queens of the Stone Age a lot. Like when that mm. started coming out, I was definitely on board for their, their first things. Uh, but anyway, Caius played, then White Zombie played, and I was pretty cold on that performance. Um, and then Danzig came out, and they just crushed everything in their path it was awesome well and it was, this is the early 90s uh era danzig where like the band is super strong and they're just destroying lives so it's no yeah wonder. it was it was perfect i mean seeing chuck biscuits play drums uh was something i'll never forget and john christ on guitar i mean it was just really kind of them at their peak and uh i'm really glad to have seen that because i've seen danzig many times since then and i always enjoy it and in fact you know, he's the one celebrity I share a birthday with. Oh. And he, in fact, uh, two years ago, handpicked Witch Mountain to support him on the Blackest of the Black tour. So we toured with him for a month in October of 2015. And that was really, you know, something special that we'd always wanted to get to do. And then it happened. Wow. Uh, Did you guys but, get to spend any time with him uh, backstage or was that all kind of separate? We spent uh, in, a, in a month's time, we spent about 90 seconds with him and took a picture. <laughs> Uh, so uh, some things don't change (laughs) yeah but who am I to complain I mean he asked for us and he put us on those shows and in fact there was one gig that was sort of an off night of the tour where the whole package took the night off Mm. because Danzig was um, asked to support Rob Zombie in Vegas on Halloween Eve and the bill was supposed to be Rob Zombie Danzig and a DJ and Glenn said hey fuck the DJ let's get Witch Mountain on this and so Nice. It was just, it was Rob Zombie, Danzig, Witch Mountain, and we were driving into Vegas, and we saw billboards with our logo on it, and it was such a trip. <laughs> yeah, this is not something Vegas. that usually happens for Witch Mountain. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, we've, we've definitely had some fortunate breaks over the years, but uh, to play to 4,000 people indoors in America was something that, you know, we'd never had before. I mean, in Europe, we played to some pretty sizable festival crowds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not in the states, and so that was really cool. Yeah, very. That's 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 so cool. Yeah, you know, like there's all these situations where you imagine artists that you like and how you would encounter them and whatnot, and it rarely does that scenario start out with. So they call me up because they like my band and they want me to play with them at this big show. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, certainly the you know the what happened behind the scenes is. We've been friends with Glenn's personal assistant for many years. He's mm. he's been a fan of Witch Mountain for a long time. And so he's I think mentioned us. He sort of put that bug in Danzig's ears over the years. But then um the last time we played in LA headlining, LA Weekly did a little blurb on us and ran a picture in the paper. And I guess Glenn saw that and he asked his his assistant Craig. He's like, looks at this picture and he goes, Witch Mountain, who are these guys? <laughs> and and Craig's like, Glenn, I wear their shirt every week. I've been telling you about them for ten years. <laughs> and, and Glenn was like, They look cool. Let's get them on. Let's get them on the tour. And uh, so it was kind of like, in a way, it took forever to happen, and in a way, it was that it's simple. So <laughs> it's cool. those kind of stories do usually kind of have like a little bit of synchronicity where they, they should have happened sooner, but like one thing kind of didn't connect, and then you know, yeah. So I'm I'm really really happy that it did, and in fact that was um, yeah I don't know it was just, it was just a great time. That's that's fantastic. Well, you know, I, I, probably to close uh, my loop on the heavy metal sewing circle, uh, yeah, this is a this is a great show if you 
if you want to just have like a good time listening to some heavy metal radio like so rarely anymore does it seem to capture the spirit of what it's like to listen to old heavy metal and you're doing a good job there so thank I, you i appreciate I, I mean it. i'm also trying to do something with it where we don't play the hits like you're not going to mm-hmm. hear breaking the law iron man enter sandman like none of that comes up on our show because those are all clear on your ipod anyway so it doesn't right you know and, and clear channel has that covered like you're gonna hear a whole lot of love like <laughs> anytime you turn on the radio like there's back in black waiting for you sure. but the thing is black sabbath i own 20 or more black sabbath records and there's only three that are in heavy rotation you know so yeah and then like uh, five songs off of those three records that you hear right. regularly <laughs> exactly so there's so much for us to explore. So even if you consider yourself a pretty serious metal fan, you're pretty much guaranteed to discover new music every time. And and it's not even that we're just combing for the most obscure artists. Like a lot of times it's just kind of that song that's buried on side two of a classic album. Right. And and it feels really good to hear it sort of out of context because there's a lot of, you know, say Iron Maiden tunes, for instance, that mm. you don't really think of until it just until it comes up on our playlist and you're like wow like standing alone that song that seems like it's a six out of ten on peace of mind is like a nine out of ten by itself right oh yeah a lot of these things are like context too because like we're so used to hearing the one song that's so well known that when you get to some of these other treasures you're like that one's just as good it should have been on the radio too (laughs) yep and and the other thing we do is the show usually kind of starts in the 60s Mm. Um, and then works its way to the present, like almost every week. It's a pretty generally chronological show. And one reason I do that is just because the production changes so much over those 40 or 50 years that it would be really weird to play like a morbid angel track and then play the trogs right after that or something. Yeah. Blue cheer kind of sticks out when compared to modern production styles. Right. Right. (laughs) And so, so that's, one of the reasons I do that. But another reason is it's just really fun each week to sort of follow that thread of where the ideas, the roots of heavy music started and, and you know, where we've arrived at now. And uh, I just I just really enjoy... I, I enjoy engaging with my record collection this way because I don't have... You know, I, I own, I don't know, three or 4,000 LPs and I don't have time to just sit and listen to them all all day. And so this is a really great way to just keep them in action because my record collection is not meant to be a dragon horde. It's meant to be a library and to, right. to get to take it out to clubs or take it on the radio is, and share it with people. Like that's, that's what I want to do with them. Yeah. We didn't even really address your, your DJing, which I, I mean, you kind of hinted at it that you, that you do DJing and that the show was kind of a way to kind of transition away from having to be out live in public all the time. But but you, you're actually a pretty, you know, I, I remember seeing you on flyers quite often, you know, like uh, sometimes a metal show would start with you just playing records. Yeah, I mean, there was a time, there were a few years where I was DJing four nights a week, and it was a, one of the ways I was paying my rent and bills. And uh, luckily, my day job, things are going well enough there that, and, and my fiction career is something I'm so passionate about that I sort of l- tried to limit my DJ activities more because you know, being out four nights a week, it just takes a lot of time away from other projects. Um, so anyway, I had a great time with that, and it was a really awesome uh, kind of ex- experience. But now I try to keep it special. And so what I have is I have the radio show every week, 
and I have three monthly gigs at Ground Control, which is the retro arcade here, because I just really love that place, and it's fun to, I don't know, playing in an old school arcade that's got a full bar in it just yeah. appeals feels to my sensibilities, especially because of the kind of music I get to play in there. Like once a month, it's a metal night. Once a month, it's uh, kind of more of a retro fantasy arena rock night and the other one is uh is called reaganomics so i only do stuff <laughs> like 80 81 to 88 in any style right um so anyway i i have fun with it i just i dj a lot less than i used to but i suppose that still comes out to seven times a month so, <laughs> <laughs> so even when you try to get away from hobbies you still find yourself coming back yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sort of into all the things I was always into. I mean, I had so many friends that went through phases as a kid. They dyed their hair blue, and then they changed it, or they were punks, and then they were goths, and then they were industrial, right. or whatever it was. And me, I've just always been a nerd that was into science fiction and fantasy <laughs> and, you know, rock music and animation and whatever else. And so... There's definitely uh, a kind of <clears throat> late 70s, early 80s nostalgia that it kind of wends its way through some of the stuff that you've done. Not all of it, but yeah, yeah, I, I think so because that's, you know, I, I grew up in the seventies and eighties. And so those are, those, those were really great times for me, even though, you know, I was in a, a trailer in rural Oregon and on a goat farm and, you know, sort of, sort of stranded in the woods. <laughs> that, there was also something great about that. And, you know, being a true free range kid, I mean, I, I think, you know, from zero to 18, I had a babysitter one day, probably, you know, the rest of the time there was either my parents were there or they were just left me to handle it because I could. Right. I don't know and, if this is the case for you, but like my rural Oregon upbringing was that you'd open the back door and there's basically just a forest out there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and you just walk into the woods and, or wade in the Creek and, you know, be gone all day. And then you come home muddy and cold and take a shower and Make Hopefully there's some food. <laughs> right. Well, you know, we should probably wrap things up here by talking about Star Creek, which um, you hinted at it earlier. This is like uh, a novella that <clears throat> I guess uh, is probably best described as kind of a, a dark fantasy version of your childhood. Yeah. Uh, I mean, another simple thing I could say is it's kind of an R-rated Stranger Things. I mean, mm. I, I, I wrote Star Creek before, you know, maybe nine months before Stranger Things came out, so it certainly wasn't an influence. But I feel like there was a bit of a zeitgeist there of, you know, free-range kids on BMX bikes in the 80s getting into trouble in the wilderness. And basically what happened was I, uh, four or five years ago, started thinking, okay, I've been talking about being a fiction writer since I was a young kid, but I'm not really taking the steps necessary to do it. And through being a musician for so long, I had learned how to not be a hobbyist as an artist. I knew that, you know, what it, what it takes to, as far as discipline and motivation, you know, talking about doing it is not the same as doing it. And it's the so, craft, you know, the, the butt yeah. to chair every day, yep. let's put out a thousand words. Absolutely. You have to really dedicate yourself to it and make it happen. And so I sort of, you know, a lot of things went into that, but, but long story short, I put my ass in the seat and I started writing and started going to conventions and started really, you know, paying attention to what was going on in these certain um, literary scenes. And before I knew it, I was starting to publish short fiction in anthologies and magazines, and it was going well. And I think I had an advantage that I was in my 40s. I had already been a professional journalist for a long time, 
I'd been a professional musician for a long time, so I was able to sort of circumvent a lot of the mistakes that a lot of beginners make. <laughs> right. Um, you, you've honed some of your uh, tools and skills enough to where like, you're not just doing boneheaded things. Right, exactly. Uh, so I was I, you know, writing professional-level work, and not, I didn't have the same voice as other people, and I think I, had, I stood out a little bit. And editors started picking up on that and started buying stories from me. And uh, the first was a story called Lurker in the Shadows that came out in a word horde anthology called Cthulhu Photogen. And it was an epistolary story in an alternate timeline where H.P. Lovecraft lived into the early 70s and had a correspondence with a young Stephen King. (laughs) (laughs) And it's it's a really fun, irreverent story, but I've gotten a lot of great feedback from it. And... Cameron Pierce, who is a really amazing writer and poet and editor, uh, ran a division of the Bizarro Press. Uh, he ran an imprint called Lazy Fascist, which was kind of hmm. the literary offshoot of Eraserhead Press. Hmm. And he approached me and said, man, epistolary stories are really hard to write, and you did a really good job with this. I'm impressed. Would you be interested in doing a novella for me? So once again, I had an editor coming to me and saying, if you write a book, I will put it out. And I didn't have to <laughs> do, do the, the laborious thing of shopping writing a book and shopping it around and yeah. being rejected over and whatever. I'm fine with rejection. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not a kid. I've got a lot of experience with that and I have to reject people all the time as well. So sure, that's sure. fine. But this was still, it felt like this is an opportunity that I would be a fool to fuck up. So right. I, so he was like, okay, well, uh, you know, what's your idea? And I said, well, you know, I, you're giving me a 90-day turnaround, so I need to do something that's kind of close to home. Mm-hmm. And, and I just thought, okay, well, putting it in Mid-Valley, Oregon in the 80s uh, is something that, that takes a lot of weight off of me. Because if I'm trying to write a story in Victorian England or in ancient Egypt, I have a lot of research I have to do. Mm, yes. but if I'm setting it in a setting, in a time and place that I'm intimately familiar with, then that's just less to think about. And I can focus more on my characters and my plot and, and actually writing something that's six times longer than anything I've ever written in my life. And so that's right. what I did. And it just turned out to be this really gonzo, bizarro, um, uh, you know, River's Edge inspired vibe of like burnout kids with very little to do except play D and D and drop acid and get into trouble, and they managed to get into a lot of trouble. <laughs> and, uh, so it was a, it was really fun to write, and like I said, he had given me ninety days to get it done, and then Danzig called and offered us that tour. So then all of a sudden, I only had sixty days to write it. <laughs> This is, this is like how the the uh, the when things start going your way, they they start uh, um, taking things away from you. <laughs> yeah, but I have no complaints. I'm I'm really have all, nothing but gratitude for the experience of all of it. Um, That's fantastic. So, so if if we want to pick up a copy of Star Creek, like what's um what's the best way we go about this? Like uh, where can we get it? Well, certainly it's available through Powell's or the Book Bin. It's on Amazon, easily accessible to anyone. Uh, I think ordering it through your local independent bookstore is great. The Witch Mountain Bandcamp has it. So it's, um, you know, it's pretty readily available at least to order um, online for sure. I mean, if you really want to walk into a bookstore and pick it up, Powell's is probably your best bet. Or 
or book bins that stock it. I know Corvallis, certainly that I've got a, a fan who works there and, and has put it in window displays and nice. kept it. Yeah. Um, it's always good to have friends in bookstores. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, <laughs> I, I've been really enjoying doing readings at, uh, you know, around, around the country, actually on our, one of those tours that we did last year, I set up a reading in New York and a reading in, um, Texas somewhere. I can't remember. And, uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. So sometimes when the band's out on the road, I can, I can get away for an hour beforehand and do a reading, but I will say I have sold more books at concerts than I have at readings, mm. excepting of course I did do a release reading at Powell's on Hawthorne in Portland for Star Creek. And it turned out to be the fifth largest reading event they had that year at that store. Wow. And so that was actually the night where I sold the most books. That was a really <laughs> successful thing. And it, and it was nice because, you know, Powell sort of went out on a limb to give me a relatively unknown writer, uh, my own reading event. And then I was able to pack the place. And now, right. uh, they're happy to have me back anytime. And that's, that's really what I was trying to do. Uh, I really told everyone, I was like, if you want to support me, be at this. And, and people came out. It was awesome. That works well in your favor too. When like you actually can, can show up and, and kind of impress them that way. So that's absolutely. Awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I love the kind of like just, just in general, the you know combination of, you know, heavy metal and rural Oregon. Um, not just because that's my own childhood, uh, but just because I think it's something that uh, it, there, it's it's got depths to it that uh, is not immediately obvious to someone who's not thinking about it, you know. Yeah, uh, and it, like for instance, the Stranger Things guys. I think there are some things they get really right. I really enjoyed the mm. first season of that show, mm -hmm. but there are young people that are like their touchstones for the '80s are watching The Goonies and ET, right. and you know, imagining what it was like. Whereas like to me, I, it was a, just a real experience. And so I think a lot of people have s rightly said that Star Creek is not a nostalgia trip. It just happens to be that's the setting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, <laughs> what um, River's Edge gets right that um, uh, Stranger Things misses is the kind of dangerousness around every corner of that kind of openness, you know, mm -hmm. like you were, yeah, you were out on your bike in the middle of the woods by yourself. That was a lot of fun, but there was also this kind of like, Oh shit, I'm lost. Like, yeah, I better wait well, for the sun to go down. So I know which direction to head, <laughs> you know, not to mention the sort of like inbred homesteaders that, yes. that you know, with no trespassing signs and oh, like yeah. you, you hop, you hop that it's, you know, if you hop a fence in the city, you might get chased by the cops and sent and get, get a ride home. Right. But if you hop a fence in the country, you know, you could get shot at. Oh and yeah. <laughs> I was trying to talk to this uh, with my cousin where she was saying like, Oh yeah, if a gun goes off in our neighborhood, the police show up instantly. And I was like, in rural Oregon, you hear guns go off all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like absolutely. It's just the way it is. Like somebody probably jumped a fence. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, uh, I don't know. I just think it's a really interesting and mysterious place. And it was something that I sort of wanted to conjure in writing. And, uh, it was really, it was really a great feeling to do that. Um, I, I've noticed that it seems like some younger readers definitely don't relate to it. And some urban readers don't really relate to it. I've, I've even seen a, a review on Goodreads where the guy said, 
hillbillies in Oregon. What's this guy talking about? I'm just like, <laughs> wow. Okay, so you, you really don't get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So and, and that's fine. But mm-hmm. um, but I think a lot of other people, you know, that are either in the a- right age bracket or have lived in the right places, they, they see some truth in it, even though it's a pretty fantastic story. Yeah. Do you think Witch Mountain fans are just more disposed to weird horror, or do you think it's just that they also read more? Like, I definitely think that anyone who's clued into real cult underground culture and music is a more discerning fan than someone who only listens to corporate radio or watches TV. Mm-hmm. And I think that the leap from being a doom metal fan to a weird horror fan is pretty short. Right. Uh, so even if 25% of the audience are keen on reading books, they're, they're definitely curious. It's, it's really great on the merch table to have all our records and t-shirts and CDs and pins and patches. And then people walk over and see, you know, I've got 10 books next to that. And <laughs> like, what is this? And it, it's just, it's eye catching because it's not what you're used to seeing. I mean, I have definitely, you know, Godspeed you black emperor, for instance, brings a book distro that's mostly sure. anarchist texts and things like that. And, and I think that's really cool to see, but it's a, uh, it's a rarity. Yeah. And so, yeah, uh, I mean, it's outside of zines. It's not something you usually see on a merch table. So that's that's yeah. that's pretty cool. Well, uh, yeah, I, I know you have your second issue coming of the Willows. Um, yep. and that's not out yet. But uh, do you have a, a sense of what your next uh, writing challenge is ahead of you? I, I imagine, much like me, you know, you, you don't fully know what these things are until you're a few pages in already. But is anything uh, grabbing you? Well, there are a few projects I have in mind. There's definitely a follow-up novel to Star Creek that I have pretty well outlined. It takes place 76 years later in a sort of secessionist uh, Northwest. Mm. Uh, I mean, the the connections with Star Creek are somewhat tenuous, but it still would be basically the same universe and place, just a different time. Got it. Um, So that is sort of the big project that I have on the horizon whenever I can make time and be ready for it. Um, I have another short story sort of burning a hole in my brain that I need to make time to sit down and write. I, I've mostly been writing for themed anthologies for the last couple of years because they're the sort of things where if I do my work, it will get published. Right. That kind uh, of uh, payoff is, is very motivating. Yeah. It, it's just, it's, because I'm new, one of my strategies has been, you know, find really respectable publications um, and get my name out there. And I feel like I've done a pretty good job of that to where, um, you know, most editors I would talk to know me either from Facebook or from my writing or from conventions. And I'm not just a complete stranger, (laughs) even to some of even to some of the bigger editors. Now, at least my name rings a bell. And so I feel like I've somewhat established myself to where I feel a bit ready now to write something that's a little bit more of a passion project or from the heart and shop it around. Because it's something Mm. I've shied away from is just writing whatever I want to and then shopping it around and getting rejections because I wanted to build that body of work and reputation. And so anyway, I think think that's sort of where I'm at now is uh, to maybe start testing the waters with sending my work out to bigger markets that I haven't tried before. And, and there are a few that have even sort of extended invitations to me like, Oh, we'd love to see something from you. And so I really need to just give them my best work. 
Um, right. This is one of those things where you don't want to show up and go like, oh, yeah, here's uh, something I was kind of looking on. You know, like, yeah, this is where you it, really pull out the big the big guns. Yeah. So I feel like I'm sort of hitting that next next phase. Um, sort of I went from unpublished to published. And now I'd like to try to publish with even bigger venues. And then there's also an editor who uh, had asked me about potentially writing a choose your own adventure. And that's something that's very interesting to do. So that's, that's a project that may be coming sooner than later as well. That's, that's super cool. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, like your name's getting fairly well known. Cause like you were uh, hosting a panel not too long ago at, uh, at a, a con you were at recently, if I'm not mistaken, like you yeah, said, I moderated. Be... Uh, yeah. I've, I've really tried to make the convention circuit work for me because a, I think, you know, who you know is so important. And B, I have a real advantage over a lot of writers in that I'm a very um, affable, diplomatic, uh, extroverted person. So I can mm. go to these conventions and and meet, you know. I mean, I was at StokerCon with George, Mar- George R.R. Martin, and I didn't bother him because I didn't really have anything <laughs> to say to him, and I don't want anything from him. Like, I'm a fan, but I don't – I didn't – but – in general, I can go to these conventions and meet, you know, the, the important people there and uh, come away with those connections. And and that's really worked in my favor. Of course, it's they're not going to publish anything from me that isn't on par with what they're, you know. What you you still to. have to have the chops. Yeah, absolutely. But having the chops and the name recognition and being thought of in a good way. Like, for instance, Jeff Vandermeer is a best-selling author um, he wrote Annihilation that's that's coming out as a feature film really soon. And uh, I because I had met him in person and reviewed his work favorably in the paper here, you know, he wrote a blurb for the Willows comic. And, you know, for that comic to come out with his blurb on the back the same week that Annihilation was like the sixth best selling book on Amazon, you know, it was uh, it felt really good just to be like, wow, it's nice to connect with supportive people well and then stuff like that leads to you getting to meet gene wolf and other people that are in this area where like it it just pulls bigger and bigger strings yep so i'm just trying to you know keep pushing that snowball up the hill so (laughs) so it rolls along on its own and it feels like it's getting a bit of momentum going and i'm really happy about it so you know honestly my biggest struggle with any of this is making the time to write because I've never been too terribly worried about marketing or even selling my work. I think the the challenge is simply making the time. And I think the last two years, I've p- published three stories a year because that's really about all I can make the time to pump out right now. And I'd love to change that, but of course, my band records albums and tours, and I have a day job, you know, my right. own business, and I DJ several times a week, and so. It's just that's that's the challenge, but uh, it's you know there's worse problems to have. And absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know this might be a good way to kind of segue towards uh, the end here, because uh, you know we 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 talked about it a little bit, and <clears throat> you know this you had wanted to be a writer from childhood, but it really kind of took you to now to like get the discipline to to you know take it very seriously. Uh, if somebody is listening and says you know hey I've always wanted to be a writer, uh, but I've had that same challenge of getting words down, uh, what is a piece of advice you'd give? Well, the, the real reason I waited so long is because uh, when I was 19 and I was a huge Gene Wolfe fanatic 
I read he, he recommended a writing book called Creating Short Fiction by Damon Knight, mm. who's a luminary sci-fi editor who actually lived in Eugene. Um, and so I read that book, and one of the things Damon Knight said was, if you're not at least 30, you should go out in the world and get some life experience so you have something to actually write about. <laughs> and, and as someone who had written dozens of terrible Lovecraft and Clive Barker pastiches in high school, <laughs> that really hit home to me because I just thought, wow, I love to write, I love the written word, but I don't really have anything to say and I don't really understand the world. I felt you know, naive about many things and confused about many things. And so I went out and I had several careers and I had, you know, romances and I traveled and my band toured around. And uh, so, you know, probably by the time I was 30, I would have had a lot more uh, the experience necessary to get more serious. But I was busy with other things. Right. And then and then I turned 40 and I just thought, all right, I definitely have life experience and I have opinions on anything and everything <laughs> and and a bit of wisdom accrued that I can apply to these things. So now is the time. And But more than anything, it was just making that decision, um, just saying, okay, I'm not going to just talk about this. I'm not going to pine for it. I'm going to stop just reading books about how to write and I'm going to actually do it. And I think some of the steps that I took that were really key were – First, I involved myself in a local writing community because even just going to events and hearing other people read um, work yes. that's not even published yet, I think is is really inspiring because it's daunting to look at, you know, a hardcover book and think like, wow, to go from writing on my computer to being published in this book, that's a big leap. Yeah, it's how do sort I get like from saying, this two words in my head to this finished novel, you know? Right. <laughs> And, and I think baby steps are really key. It's in, in every step of my life, it's important to not always look at the big picture. I think instead of thinking like, oh, I wish I could quit my job and be a musician or, oh, I wish I could be a published novelist, a bestseller. The thing to think about is what's the first step that I need to take? Right. You know, whether, what can whether I do that's, today? Yeah, exactly. And so... So for some people, that's, I need to write 500 words. And even if that's 500 words that you're going to throw away tomorrow and start over, just doing that is muscle building. And, it, and it's something I really found by writing Star Creek. You know, that's a 37,000 word novella, which is not that long, but it was longer than anything I've written. Um, and certainly as as, along for a two-month writing jaunt, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It was a lot to pump out in a short time. Um and when it was over, I kind of felt exhausted, like I had given birth, and I was like, man, I'm not going to write anything for a while. And then all of a sudden, Word Horde invited me to participate in their Frankenstein-themed anthology, and I had, again, like three weeks to do something for them. <laughs> and, I, and I turned around like a, I was a 9,000 or 11,000 word novelette really quickly, and all of a sudden I realized, wow, this is like muscle building, and it actually mm -hmm. gets easier. And... I won't say the fear ever goes away, but it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And I think, you know, whatever it takes to overcome that fear and really just sit down and write is so important. And for me, a lot of it has to do with turning off the noise of the outside world, turning off the internet, turning off my phone. And, and my best writing nights tend to be like Friday and Saturday night when all my friends are out doing something. 
because, uh, you know, I'm a social person and I'm at events constantly and I'm involved in the music scene and there's a lot of noise and activity and distraction. And those tend to be the nights where everyone else is out doing something and I can just really have that quiet, calm place where I can sit down and get a lot done. And some nights I'll get 4,000 words out because that I know that it might be a week before I have that chance again. Yeah, no one's texting you or saying like, you got to be at this show, Rabbits is here, come on down. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and because I'm fortunately in a, you know, as my own boss, I can go see Rabbits play on a Monday night. (laughs) Right. Which you you should, if you're listening and you don't know what we're talking about, just go see Rabbits. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Well, this has been great. Is there something that we haven't addressed yet that you wanted to get at before before we close this up or? Uh, I guess just the next thing that I have coming out is there's an anthology called Test Patterns that's the broad theme is sort of Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, Night Gallery type stories. Mm. And uh, I wrote my most recent publication will be that. Uh, I think the book is available for order on Amazon right now. And my story, The Velveteen Volvo, appears in there along with a lot of really other great writers. I Actually, I'm really looking forward to getting a physical copy myself because it's so new. I don't even have it yet. But uh, (laughs) that's sort of the latest and greatest. There's also a new Witch Mountain album that's in the can and coming out soon, but we haven't got a release date set for that yet. Ooh, yeah, we should talk about that again when it's actually out and stuff. Sure. uh, Because I do like me some Witch Mountain. Nice. Well, there is a single that uh, was uh, debuted by Adult Swim as part of their single series. in November 2017, so one song is already online to hear. <laughs> now, what what, how, what a crazy uh, sentence right there! Where like you you're, you've gone from like being a fan of animation and weird stuff to having Adult Swim release a single of yours. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the second time we worked with them because Witch Mountain was also on their Metal Swim compilation in, back in 2010, I think. Yeah, and that's right. uh, yeah, they've been really good to us. I mean. The Adult Swim thing was in, insane because they advertised that stuff on television. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there was a time where, like, the month that that uh, Metal Swim comp came out, our Facebook likes went up by, like, 30%. Like, it's, it's, <laughs> it's insane how many people say, that's how I heard of your band. Because they had a television commercial running during Metalocalypse, which is, like, <laughs> I mean, talk about targeted marketing. Exactly. And they're on there saying... Boris, Death Angel, Isis, Witch Mountain, you know, like, <laughs> just putting us in that company was really, really something. Yeah. And, well, uh, and so, it's the right audience and the right combination of things. It's, it's, it's the perfect package. Yeah. So again, we're really, I mean, as the manager of the band, you know, it's sort of my job to try to reel in these opportunities. And so I, I try to stick my neck out and throw my net wide and see what gets caught in it and see what's possible. And I'm, I've really mastered the art of kind of staying on people's radar, but not bothering them. You know, <laughs> it, oh, it, a, you should teach really, a class. Yeah, right? Oh. I mean, it, it's a really good trick to, you know, not uh, get lost in the fray, but also not be wheedling people and you know a thorn in their side so sure as someone who's like just now hitting 20 years in radio i can uh i can tell you that like this needs to be a college level class taught to everyone (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean it it does seem like people either give up too easily or or pester you and Mm -hmm. uh what, what i like to do is send out that polite note and then try to get a sense of how long I should wait. And a lot of times I'll set a calendar reminder for myself. Like if someone says, oh, 
I'm not really going to be thinking about that till September. Then I'll make a calendar reminder for myself. September 1st, send this person a friendly note. And 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 it really your tone counts a lot too. If you're just saying, "Hey, didn't know, don't want to bother you, but just still keep thinking about this." And yeah. you know, many times people will say, "Oh, I'm glad you reminded me of that. Okay, I'm ready to think about that now." And uh, well, and conversely, to- I can't tell you the number of times people have said, mm, "You know, the tone of that message, I didn't even want to talk to that guy." Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you if you sound like you're begging or desperate or entitled, it's going to work against you every time. But if if you're just really positive and friendly and saying, "Hey, I just wanted to check in here, no pressure." You know, like I appreciate getting notes like that from people as well. going to do it for us this week here on WTBC Radio and Beautiful Anywhere, Anywhere. That was, uh, well, thank you very much, Nathan, for uh, sticking around, uh, chatting with me, and getting into some of the nuts and bolts of what it means to sit down every day and produce writing. <laughs> it's it's harder than it, than it looks, folks. It's, it's really, it's not easy. Our theme music is by Paco and Laura Jones. And our closing theme is by the band X. Please check us out at anywhereanywhen.wordpress.com. All the information about all of our episodes and how to subscribe to our program in both iTunes and whatever it is that podcatcher thingy that you use that that is a nice theme. So I assume overcast or something like that let us know what you think about the program uh, or if you're interested in underwriting with us we're more than happy to take your money and use it to make more good radio so drop a line austinrich at gmail.com and uh, yeah I'm kind of toying with some of the ways that uh, this show will be presenting itself uh and so keep your ears peeled for something on thursdays most likely a little bit shorter than the average episode but uh it's hard to say uh and those might be a little different than the tuesday shows but uh yeah stay tuned there's all sorts of fun things coming on wtbc radio in beautiful anywhere anywhere and that's enough of my yak. And you guys are great. Uh, you guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. Without you, there would be no show. Be seeing you. Well, you know, there's a, a number of vectors here where, uh, or the, the Venn diagrams of our lives crossed over because uh, I used to work on a goat farm, lived in Eugene. I worked in a bookstore in Eugene. Uh, 
But one of the other things that I uh, <clears throat> that crosses over is that uh, I have a very fond memory of Bishop of Battle. Uh, oh, that's cool. <laughs> which um, <clears throat> my entry point was uh, the Wow Hall with Manor Asterman and Operation Reinformation. Uh huh. You guys were on the bill. Had no idea who this band was, but I liked the name. Um, and uh, I, you know, to this day, it, it was the first burned CD that I bought. Awesome. Because uh, I hadn't seen one yet. <laughs> we hand burned those two hundred CDs at two speed. Like it took <laughs> it took two weeks to burn those two hundred CDs. Like my housemate Christian, who's our rhythm guitar player in that band, he would like basically all night while he was you know sleeping like every half an hour or whatever he would get up and change discs um, and then we made a rubber stamp of the the bishop maze and rubber stamped each of those gold cdrs because at that time uh hiring someone to burn a cdr for you was like 15 dollars a piece oh yeah and so we had to do it ourselves at home and uh I think the print, the covers, I worked at Tektronics at the time in the, in the color printers division, actually. I used to make GIF banner ads oh, okay. uh, for, for a living, and uh, they had to be 12K or less and animated. And it was, a, it was a really great job, actually. But I went there after hours one night and printed 200 high-quality, full-color covers. And I remember the security guy walks by and he goes, working late and i was like yep yep oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well you know yeah. I'll, I'll let you know that it, it still holds up i was able to rip a copy of it not too long ago for my my most recent computer um that's really awesome yeah and and, and it still sounds pretty good too because like i mean you know at the time i was just blown away by seeing this like perfect blend of rock and roll and synth um you know and it, and it had this like wonderfully heady like late 70s uh aesthetic um, but now, like the songs, I, I think they really stand up. Like they haven't really diminished with time. Like some late, late '90s stuff that I was really into in those days did not age well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would like to go back and properly master that record because the mastering was done by us at home on a computer. Uh, but the <laughs> recordings themselves, I think, were good, and the songs were good, and I'm really proud of that material. There's a whole second album that was recorded but never finished, oh. and and I'd kind of like to get that stuff done at some point too. Um, it's interesting. I was at a dispensary on uh, last night on our way to the sewing circle, and the guy who worked there was like, "Hey, I just heard Bishop of Battle for the first time." I was like, "Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> that stuff's still still going." Uh, it still one, one regret I have is there was a Swedish label that wanted to release that album for us but it was right as we were breaking up and i've had this uh experience several different times where a label has come to me wanting to release a record right as my band was breaking up and out of a sense of honor i've always like said no because i didn't want to screw somebody sure but uh in the long run i, I kind of regret some of those decisions because then those records would be out there with that you know, labels name on it. And I think that they might, some of those releases would be better remembered, but uh, yeah. one of these days I'll go through my archives and, you know, start, start getting these things available again, because I have quite a back catalog at this point. Yeah. But you, you know, you're, you're probably playing the better card too. Cause uh, a, a friend of mine who I will remain not mention the name of was just complaining about how an ex bandmate of his just reissued everything without 
asking the other band members and right it was creating some tensions and i was like mm, you see this is why you ask <laughs> yeah for sure no i mean if i if i do anything like that i'll certainly talk to everyone however i feel pretty confident that anyone i've worked with in the past would be happy just to see it get done and they know that if i start a project i'll actually complete it so right uh, yeah I, I can't i don't think i have any uh past projects where anyone would um have an issue with the recordings coming out but, uh, <laughs> right 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 hopefully not it would it would be a lot of fun to hear like a nice you know mastered version of this prequel plus stuff because like like I was saying, I think it ages well, but uh, like I could totally hear it, like you know, just mixed a little bit differently, and you know. Yeah, I think so. It's it's definitely been on my mind. I'm just I'm trying to get to a point where either I feel like there's enough demand for my back catalog that I could sell 500 copies of them, uh, and also just having the time and money to sink into sort of a vanity project like that, because you know the reality is it's a it's a small group of people that remember bishop of battle that was it was such a because bishop of battle was formed from the ashes of a band called moon patrol and that band was a was a new wave party band out of corvallis and in corvallis we became big fish in a small pond we we got to this point where we would play a party and a hundred high school kids would come and see us and sing along and it was none of us had ever really experienced you know, that microcosm of success before with anything mm, we'd done. Yeah. And it really kind of puts, and, and then Manor Astroman, well, actually that came a little bit later, but uh, I mean, Manor Astroman was at least aware of us and asking us to play shows. And we were coming up to Portland to play with Six Finger Satellite and Trans Am and Chrome and bands like that. Whoa. So, <laughs> so we, uh, we all decided to move to Portland at the same time. And so in 1997, Moon Patrol moved to Portland, but then immediately sort of imploded because the guy who was the lead guitar player visionary behind that band was just, he just had a different idea than the rest of us. He really mm. only wanted to do three minute songs in major keys. And uh, the rest of us were interested in being a little more progressive and a little darker. And uh, we also didn't have, uh, drinking problems. So <laughs> the, the anyway, curse of so many great bands. <laughs> right. So, so we basically fired him and restarted as Bishop of battle. And, um, I can't remember what the point of my story was, but, uh, it was, uh, Oh, basically that we got to Portland and all of a sudden we were not a big fish in a small pond. We were a tiny drop in the bucket and nobody yes. cared. And it, and the late nineties, uh, indie, scene in portland was very depressed because like grunge was over and you know the bands like you're talking like yes elliot smith was very successful but a lot of the other bands that he was contemporaries with were either broken up or playing the smaller audiences because mm -hmm. in the early early 90s it was very common that i would come to portland and see local bands playing to 500 to a thousand people that was just oh yeah opening for the big touring act no even headlining oh like like local bands in Portland could could draw really big crowds in that time. And I don't know if it was just because it was still MTV era or because there were simply less bands or because more people cared about uh, art and music. But it's something where nowadays, if you can draw 200 people in Portland, you're a you're a really popular band. Right. And right. Kenny Club then, is starting to be kind of more like your your top end. Right. So it's it's really interesting how much 
I don't know if it's simply because there's so many different kinds of bands and styles and everyone's really just focused on their own niche interests or whether people just got older and had kids and quit going out or whatever. Uh, but in general, local bands just cannot command the draws that they could 20 years ago. WTPC Anywhere Anywhere From my house to yours 